Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, everyone is talking about Saltburn, like Barry Keoghan this, Jacob Elordi that. Where is the talk about the queen of the movie, Rosamund Pike? I will not stand for this erasure. Oh my God! Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Oh my God, guys! Jake has a podcast. Jake has a podcast. Oh my God! 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 What's up, everybody? My name is Jake Workman, and this is Oh My Pod, you guys, a musical theater and pop culture podcast. You guys, we did it. We did it. We made it to the new year. 2023 is gone and darlings she was something I I gotta say and without you know sounding just so sappy and annoying all things considered last year was pretty amazing I I had the opportunity to do some amazing things and I feel so grateful and fortunate and I I started this podcast almost a full year ago and I'm just so proud of of where we are now and I'm so excited for what 2024 has for us. So just wanted to say thanks to everybody for listening and um, for all of your amazing support because I've I've just received nothing but love for, for this show and for where I am in my life. And yeah, and wishing you guys all the best in the new year. I have an amazing guest for you guys this week, but before I introduce you to Scott Frankel, we have to dive right into this week's Broadway World Recap, brought to you by my amazing friends at broadwayworld.com. First, you guys, we must talk about the absolutely insane performances at the 45th Annual Kennedy Center Honors that were on December 27th. You guys, uh, you guys, the performers, I mean, okay, first of all, we're honoring some unbelievable people. Billy Crystal, Renee Fleming, Barry Gibb, Queen Latifah, and Dionne Warwick. Like this, this Kennedy Center Honors was just bound to be incredible. But then we got performances by freaking Titus Burgess, Dove Cameron, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Ariana DeBose, Cynthia Erivo, Mama, Cynthia in that green gown singing the house down. You guys. You have to look up these videos. It's it's insane. I just love the Kennedy Center honors, you guys. I just think it's such a beautiful celebration of art and culture. And Broadway World actually put together a collection of some of the highlights from previous Kennedy Center honors, including 
Carol Burnett, Shirley MacLaine. Like, you guys, go to broadwayworld.com and look at this amazing collection of these highlights. The Kennedy Center honors are just the best. Next, you guys, we have to talk about The Color Purple topping the Christmas Day box office with an $18 million debut. Like, this is insane. I mean, we haven't seen numbers like this since 2012 when Les Mis came out, and now The Color Purple is tied with them for the highest grossing Christmas Day debut. So sending a huge oh my pod, you guys, congrats to everyone involved in the making of this iconic movie. I cannot wait to see it. And lastly, you guys, we got a very fun casting announcement that Little Shop of Horrors is going to welcome Darren Chris and Evan Rachel Wood into the roles of Seymour and Audrey in January. The show has been running off Broadway at the Westside Theater since 2019, and they have certainly had their fair share of, you know, celebrity stunt casting in these roles. But I think Darren and Evan Rachel Wood are going to be amazing as Seymour and Audrey. I will say, though, it is funny just because Darren is so, so handsome and <laughs> Seymour is supposed to be like this, oh, I don't know, like, uh, will Audrey like me? And I'm like, girl, it's Darren Chris. But hey, he's a great actor. He's a great singer. He will be excellent. I have seen the show three times, you guys. Like, this production is amazing, and I'm so excited to see how Darren and Evan make these roles their own. And you guys, this has been the Broadway World Recap. Oh my pod, you guys. I am so excited to welcome my next guest to the show. I, I am completely in awe of this person. He is a, a phenomenal musical theater composer, a, a music director, a conductor, a pianist, a genius, and an also just absolutely lovely person. Please welcome Mr. Scott Frankel. Thank you, Jake. That's a lot to live up to uh, so early in the day for me. Well- <laughs> But it's, it's the it's the crack of noon. Yeah, <laughs> dawn has struck. Yes, and I'm forcing you out into the world. <laughs> Thank you so so much for being here, Scott. I, I my pleasure to chat with you. I have been a fan of your work for quite some time, and then I had the absolute immense pleasure of getting to see you work in the room on the Flamingo Kid at Hartford Stage so long ago before the pandemic. It's, yes. Crazy. Crazy. But I'm so glad that we've been able to stay like semi in touch through all the social media worlds and everything because I truly I'm just such a fan of your work and I can't believe you're here. I've seen you in I've seen you in many more different looks than you've seen me though, I think in those <laughs> in those years. Because you you like to rock different Different looks. I surely do. I, w- I went platinum. I just shaved my head completely bald. We are right. Getting- <laughs> my looks have remained more constant, but I have less to work with than you do. Oh, so. please. So I'm, I'm, just stick- I'm just sticking with the signature. <laughs> well, I have many, many questions to ask you because I'm just so excited to pick I up. I will answer them all with a reasonable degree of candor. Okay. And Eb. <laughs> thank you. I'm here all week. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you start. You started it with "Oh my pod, you guys," which is kind of brilliant. Period. <laughs> I wish Period. I had written that. I wish I had written that song. <laughs> oh my god! Well, feel free to write the <laughs> the next or, or the theme the, the theme song for "Oh my pod, you guys." Yeah, it's exactly. not what you think it is. <laughs> well, okay. So starting off strong, we we have to talk about the Flamingo Kid because sure. that is where our paths first crossed, and it was something that to say it plainly changed my life because I met you and I met Darko and I met Robert and 
everybody in that cast. I mean, it was it was one cast stacked full of. And am I remembering that you had just come out of Heart? Yes, I was in my senior year. I was. It was that's set, right. Final heart semester. with two Heart with two T's. Don't you forget it. Yeah. And it was yeah. That was my first foray into like the the real heavy hitting <laughs> you were you were plucked world. from academia into the <laughs> into the broadway the sprightly young age of 22 i don't want to hear it i remember 22 <laughs> well tell me how did you first become involved with the flamingo kid sure so um many many years ago i had um, a meeting with some producers um got it probably about 10 years ago at this point and Maybe even maybe even twelve, and uh, they had a list of movie titles, and uh, they got to that one, and I said, "Oh, well, I've always had a lot of affection for the film. For people who don't know, it's a kind of coming of age story. It starred uh, Matt Dillon, very young, handsome Matt Dillon, is mm, a, a kid at a Long Island beach club. Uh, he's from a more modest economic circumstance in in Brooklyn, but he kind of gets swept up into a more affluent beach club, and he." Uh, learns about life and love and card playing and how to uh, be a good person and what to do and what not to do in life. So it's, I thought it had some potentials. And I've got, you know, I'm, I was born in 1963 and the show takes place in 1963. Um, so it's not exactly the music of my childhood, but I've got a lot of affection for that. Sure. You know, that was the great kind of Brill building sound, uh, kind of early Carol King and uh, Neil Sedaka and, you know the Shirelles, and all it was. It was a kind of great time in American popular music. So I thought I thought it might be fun to dip into that sound as well. Absolutely. And then you created so beautifully this this sort of like landscape of sound for this beach club that we got to go to, which was so fun. Thank you. Um, oh, my doggies, my doggies, trying to jump in my lap. No, Piper. Um, Piper's welcome on the pod. Piper, uh, Piper would lo- Piper would take over the pod. She's not so good with the boundaries, but we're working on that. Sure. My hu- my husband was like, "We're not going to raise her with treats as motivation. We're going to." I'm like, mm, "All right, girl. Good luck with that. Dogs want <laughs> treats. So now we're, we're back to motivated. the treats. Now we're back to the we're back to the treats of the talking. And uh, anyway, so we did. Uh, that show went on and then I uh, had always been a great fan of Robert Friedman who uh, wrote the book and lyrics to Gentleman's Guide among others and uh, so uh, I asked him and he had a great affection for that film in that period too so we uh, uh, we started to work together and and I can't believe that's four, almost five years ago in Hartford now. I know, Jesus. incredible and I also think it's just for, for listeners who may not you know even be familiar with like the world of creating a show it it is always surprising i think to hear how long it takes to get to wherever to get to a workshop stage and then to be out of town and then to broadway or off broadway and it's i just am so in awe of of you and your work because you have so many things that have made it so far well you know i think partly the reason partly the reason that's true is well it's two it's twofold at least one uh, because of the economics, that because everything is so expensive, you really want to make sure what you have is uh, good enough to kind of go on to the next level before people want to, before everything will become that much more expensive. Yeah. But then also, I think because 
you know, they say that musicals are the one true American art form because it's a combination of so many individual components, music and lyrics and script and sets and lights and costumes and dance and acting and storytelling, you know, because there's so many elements when you put them together in different ways, uh, one little change will affect all the other departments too. So you like to think, you know, I like to think I know what I'm doing, but as you get into things, you know, certain things you don't really find out until you actually uh, do it or see it or hear it. So that's another reason why they take so long because you, well, the other thing they say is you never really finish, you never really finish writing a musical, you just open it. And uh, (laughs) and and there's a certain truth to that too. So you can, you can be tinkering, you keep, you keep tinkering away at it, which we have been doing and which we are continuing to do. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting too, because as, as the creator, as the, the writer of the music, you're kind of holding everything else up. I mean, that's what we're there for. And, and so you have to have, I would imagine like such a fine balance between like ownership over it and being able to just like throw things to the cutting room floor and be like, all right, moving on next thing. Like, how do you absolutely. And, that? I, and, that, and I, that's something I tell, I teach a, a music theater composition class at Yale that these days, it's actually a class that I took 40 years ago. So Incredible. I remember, and Maury Yeston was my professor. So I remember oh. being in that class and now Come it's in a kind of, in a kind of weird uh, flip of the telescope. I'm teaching that class, but I tell those students, you know, um, you really have to be uh, selfless uh, and willing to kill your children in terms yeah. of musicals. <laughs> because if you hang on to a song uh, that you love, 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 and say, "No, I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to shorten it. I'm not going to cut it," uh, you could end up having the greatest song in a musical that didn't work. So you can win the battle and lose the war. Right. And, you know, nobody really wants that. Uh, We all want to see our shows on stage and we all want to see them connect with an audience. So that kind of absolutism, if you're content to have your show done in your living room, you can be like that. But otherwise, you really need to be more open to listening to your collaborators and listening to audiences about, you know, if they're engaged if they're way past you you know they'll they'll, they'll give you clues and so (laughs) it's important to be able to listen to those too yes one audience is like flapping their playbills at a performance you can go like oh well maybe they're hungover they had a whatever if like if those if five performances in a row that same place they're they're, everybody's jostling their playbills you're like "Mm, they're they're right and and i'm wrong (laughs) sure (laughs) which is just hilarious so tell me, I mean, you mentioned the incredible Maury Esten, but I would love to know who who are the people or are there people who inspired you and whose work sort of informed the way that you go about creating a score or a song or a melodic line? Absolutely. Well, sure. Well, of course, you have to start with Sondheim, the late great. I mean, of course, uh, I... You know, in in the seventies, I was a seven to seventeen year old in the seventies, and that those were the particular, um, you know, very large looming years for him. Yes, Company, Night Music, Follies, Pacific Overtures, and Sweeney, and those those hit me very very hard as a adolescent, and uh, 
So that influence is strong. I'm a huge Bernstein fan. I'm a huge Julie Stein fan. Uh, I'm a Kurt Vile fan. I'm an occasional Jerry Herman fan. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so like, you know, I mean, I love Cy Coleman. Um, well, now there's a lot of discussion about um, influences and appropriations, but I think um, we all have influences and we all listen to things out there. And I think in the best way, it's you take what has impacted you and you uh, let it kind of soak in and then you put it in the Cuisinart in your head and you and you put all those influences in and you hit you hit on and then it, it, it spins hopefully into something that uh, both acknowledges those influences but also sounds like what we all want, which is to sound like ourselves. Right. And that's really hard to do. It's really hard to do as young writers, which I also, you know, to, um, you know, I, I, all during my 20s, I would ask myself, is it fresh enough? Is it this enough? Does it sound too much like that? Is it too reminiscent of that? Uh, and I've turned, it's taken me, it took a lot of years to kind of turn the volume down on those questions because if you are aficionado of, of, of the great writers, it's hard not to be influenced by them. But ultimately, ultimately, you want to take those influences, but, but make them your own. Right. And I would think, too, that there has to be some sort of honor in that because you also now have become a fixture of the musical theater canon. And so how could someone not listen to a score like Grey Gardens and be influenced in their writing as well, you know, and like, you know, how you teach. Well, I hope so. That's thank you, Jake. That I mean, I don't like, you know, I mean, I think the young writers are particularly obsessed with Jason Robert Brown. Like yes. that is the so a lot of young writers <laughs> That's the baseline. Well, no, a lot of young writers kind of end up because because, uh, you know, their his his songs are really uh, active and, and usually um, energetic and their story songs and they're super popular uh, and you sing the, you know, last five years and, and uh, th those loomed very large to, to younger writers and performers. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so now we have a whole generation of people who are kind of sounding like little mini Jasons, but, but they'll, but they'll, they'll, they'll figure <laughs> out, they'll figure out their way past that too. But I, I did think too, that, you know, what I tell students, now, it's really, sure, you should know all the writers that have influenced you, but then you should know their influences. So, like, right. Sondheim was a huge, uh, a huge Maurice Ravel, um, a classical composer fan. And so, like, sure, listen to Sondheim, but, like, then go back one ear earlier and mm. listen to who was in his ear, and then maybe that might give you, that might unlock some other things uh, for you, as opposed to playing Sweeney Todd twenty four seven, sure. Which, which I which I did anyway, but read me, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that you you um, mentioned that you are an occasional listener of uh, Mr. Jerry Herman because I asked one of my dear friends, um, shout out, <laughs> Colin yes. Perth, one of my dear friends, um, how he would. Um, or, or what he would want to know from you because he is a fan of yours. And he said that he has compared you to Jerry Herman before because you both write for the dames. You write mm -hmm. for these ladies. And are there, you know, Jerry Herman talks a lot about how he was 
inspired the, the people that he writes were inspired by his mother. And so um, I would love to know, and so would Cullen, um, if there are women in your life who have inspired these these women that you write. And that it's a really support. good question. I mean, um, not specifically. I mean, I certainly came of age when, um, you know, Merman is, is before me, but like, you know, Patty and Angela Lansbury and, uh, you know, uh, Christine, people, people who, um, the, the large, the large female outsized personality, but maybe more <laughs> fragile on the inside. Sure. I mean, I think a lot, I think, I do think too that, that the kind of, there's a lot of symbiosis between gay men of my era and, those ladies too. Yes. I think partly because, um, like, you know, the younger gays don't 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 remember this, but like, you know, there was a time when dinosaurs ro roamed the earth when things were not so accepting and things were against the law and there was no marriage and there was no possibility of serving in the armed forces and you really were second class citizens and yeah. criminalized and penalized and so. I think uh, I and, and and gay male writers of my era kind of would sometimes maybe identify with these strong, larger-than-life female characters and actresses and personalities. But they would um, they would they would face their lives with energy and style, but they it was all some of it was also kind of a mask of bravado that maybe they were more fragile and injured on the inside, but they didn't want to show that except, you know, maybe for a big 11 o'clock number, like if you walked into my life or something, right. Uh, where you really got, got to feel the pain and, or, or, uh, frustration or, or fear or anxiety of those characters. And, uh, mm. I mean, uh, I'm not really answering your question. I mean, I have a very fraught kind of, I mean, I'm really pretty much entirely estranged from my mother. So like, I can't look to that as a reason why, uh, <laughs> sure. uh, uh, although she, although she might look to that cause I think she thinks she writes some of those shows, but anyway, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, oh my, oh my pod, you guys episode. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I like, I think I write for men well too. And it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, now we're in this, I think, really unfortunate era where you're only supposed to write your immediate experience, according to the the social justice warriors. And ah. I don't, I just don't believe in that at all. It's like I, I'm writing for the human experience, and I, you know, I think that uh, you don't need to be a certain uh, gender or sexual orientation, or uh, you don't need to be. I don't think you need to be a murderous barber to play Sweeney Todd. I mean, right. I think that we're all. Uh, I, I look to the theater for kind of larger themes of humanity and humanness. And I think that's, that's, that's the watchword for me. So yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to explore my own humanity in the, in wrestling with these characters, uh, and particularly some of these larger than life female, female characters. Sure. And I think you, you touched on it too, but the, the um, sort of symbiosis of, of being a gay man in a world that wasn't um, open to that. Yeah. These, these women 
sort of act as conduits to telling your message. And I think it's a really sort of like poetic way that you get to do that, which is through music, because you're not even using words necessarily. But these Well, and maybe also too, like the, in Hollywood movies, like it's usually, and musicals, I suppose, it's usually the men, the male characters, the cisgender male characters that are more stoic and less emotionally available. And it's usually mm-hmm. the female characters that are more emotionally available. So I think as a young gayling, I would look to Hollywood and look to Broadway. Uh, you know, so I guess I was, when I would see The King and I, I guess I was more of a, you know, I, could, I guess I identified more with Mrs. A- Mrs. Anna because... Yeah. Um, the ball because of the ball gown, of course, and I could polka. <laughs> no. uh, because he was, he was more guarded and you, you only got to see he only let his veil down in terms of his feelings and emotional life uh, only sometimes in that show. But she and the female characters, by and large, you, you can access those those emotions and those thoughts and, and feelings and sensibilities oh, yeah. more easily. So I, I think mean, that's the, maybe the song, why. Something wonderful, that, that way into seeing him. And Well, I just love that song. Of course, it's fabulous. And it's interesting well, to like also, not, sorry, not to gripe, not to gripe, Jake, but no, like... No, please. Uh, like... I hear a lot from young audiences these days. They say things like, well, I didn't see myself up there uh, when, they'll, when they'll see a show. Like, I didn't see, my, I didn't see myself up there. And I'm thinking like, okay, like if it's a historical piece you've just seen, you're not going to see characters in, in present day street clothes and they're not going to be texting each other on devices <laughs> uh, and they're not going to be on apps. But like when I look at the king and I, I can certainly see see myself in both of those main characters and in Tub Team. I mean, again, to kind of look and see the, you know, have you felt unrequited love? Have you been rebuffed? Have you longed for someone? Have you uh, been frustrated in a relationship? So I I tend to look uh, and see myself in a non-literal way in stories. And I think that's that's what the humanness and humanity is. So, like, I wish I could sometimes shake young audiences like, you know, it's like, do you really only want to see musicals that take place in the present where everybody's texting each other? I mean, sure, if it's a good story, but like, you also exist in other musicals too. If you, if you, if you could just imagine. And, and that, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That is what I think is missing from contemporary or not contemporary to use that word or that genre, but like current musicals, there just isn't that sense of spirit and the the my voice teacher mark always called it the folly of life of just like that the little melancholy twinge that like ooh that hit a little hard and like that's not who i am that's not right characters couldn't be me but i'm but i've been an experience i've felt something like that in my own life and with my own characters so yeah i i that's why that when i can find when i can have that little emotional catch in my chest at the theater um, I thrill to that. That's why I like to go to the theater. Like in whatever, whatever specific story they're trying to tell me, if I can uh, kind of involuntarily have a moment like, oh my God, like something like that. Like I, I know just what that's like or that, that happened to me when I was younger or I wish that could happen to me going forward or, you know, totally. like if, if, you can, if you can find those moments, I think that's, that becomes the dialogue between your life and the life of the characters. Well, and that is why I, um, I mean, switching gears a little bit, but yes. I, of course, have to talk to you about Grey Gardens. Because sure. I, it's been 
one of my favorite scores forever. And uh, I've actually heard you sing from Grey Gardens, and I'm going to say even in Christine's original key. Oh, and the way that I am about to blush like no other, Mr. Frankel. Embarrassing. No, it was great. Uh, I remember. I remember that. But that that is how I feel about that role. Like I obviously am not Edie. I right. <laughs> I'm not Christine, but I feel the the emotions and the the passion and the ache in those songs. And so singing a song like "Another Winter in a Summer Town" and and those those melodic phrases is just it transforms me. It takes me somewhere else. And so I love getting to do that for other people too. I mean, I think that's what drew me to that project and that, to that character. You know, uh, Little Edie in particular, I mean, she's so, uh, I mean, obviously fascinating and eccentric and, and beautiful, but also a little bit touched in, a, in some sort of way. Right. But that she uh, has such hope for tomorrow, you know, that she'll find that Libra man or she'll, you know, someone will rescue the sleeping beauty and, 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 and that she'll, or she'll make it to New York finally, or she'll be able to do her dance. And, uh, I think, you know, I've had some melancholic, uh, things in my own personal life. And I, I wish I had as much um, energy and, and positivity as Edie did. And I think that's also why a lot of gay men gravitate toward that character, that she, that w regardless of the disappointments that she's, real, very real disappointments that she's had in her life, she faces the day with incredible purpose and, and energy. And she puts on her revolutionary costume and she goes yes. to do battle uh, and to make it through another day. And I think that that's a very hopeful, survivalist, triumphant uh, color that resonates with a lot of gay men who particularly when the movie came out in the 70s and in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the aughts, you know, when again, when life for gays in this country was not so good, you could argue that we still haven't gotten past the worst of it, but it, things are certainly better now, but that yeah. she uh, she doesn't, collapse she she starts she she keeps pushing and hoping and i think that i think that's what connects with a lot of people watching that show yeah so then can i ask just because i'm so fascinated yeah. how how do you go about saying that without words because i'm just so i'm always so fascinated when when you know music and and lyrics are written by different people who work so beautifully together and you know you have found an incredible writing partner in mr Michael Corey. Yeah, I mean, he's. It's a really good question. You know, music, uh, nonverbal communication, in this instance, music has this intangible ability to move people, yeah. to affect people, and even involuntarily. Like you could play something. I mean, that's that's what film scoring is to a lot to a large degree. You, there, it's it's getting you to feel excited or getting you to feel anxiety or fear in a horror film or getting you to feel um, emotions in a, a love story or, a, or, or anguish in an anguished love story. And so, yeah, it's a little bit mysterious to me too. I mean, I, we work, I, when I first met Michael, I used to love getting lyrics, have the lyric first. So he would sure. do the lyric first and then I would respond to it. It gives me so much more information 
Like if I have, I can see structure, I can see language, I can see uh, how he has chosen to have the characters uh, speak and mm -hmm. sound. Uh, but we can go the other way too. Uh, I, I, I don't mind. I go both ways, Jake, is what I'm saying. And uh, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, on my pod. Oh, it's an on my pod, you guys. Exclusive scoop. I go exactly. both ways. <laughs> Scott Frankel outed on the pod. Oh, my God. I outed myself. Um, but, but uh, you know, certain keys, like I like to write in flat keys. For your listeners who don't know, there are, there are sharp keys and flat keys. Mm -hmm. and this is based on the notes on a on a piano, and uh, you know C D E F sharp G sharp, like those are an A. Those are sharp keys, but I like to write in D flat and G flat. And you might think, oh well, what's the difference? They're all just you know a half step different from each other. Mm, the the flat keys <laughs> tend to have a kind of richer, warmer, um, a little bit sadder. Uh, lusher sound um, as opposed to something like A or G, which has a very bright, sharp, metallic, more, I guess you could say, positive, happy sound. Sure. And so I tend to write in those darker keys. And then harmonically, you know, um, I like a pretty rich and lush palette of sound. And so I'm going to be using chords and harmonic gestures that are um, a little more aching and, and, uh, I don't do it intentionally, but it kind of, if I feel it's right for the moment, which uh, and I tend to write about a lot of sad moments. So I guess I use that a lot, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that all of that can kind of help again, even if you're not musically knowledgeable, uh, as most people I'm trying to connect with are not, they're sitting there in the audience and unbeknownst to them, I'm stacking the deck in terms of not exactly being a, a puppet master, but I'm doing things that I know can subliminally affect them. Yeah, this it's is a, magic this is a flat. This is a flat key, so I'm going to get you. I'm going to get your ear that way. And this is a instead of just a triad or a, a simple chord, this is going to be a really sophisticated, uh, 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 almost a jazz chord that has lots and lots of notes in it. That, some of which that rub against each other in a way that's almost dissonant, but it's also kind of anguished. And so. Like you can you can do things that um, help that help support the storytelling and the character painting that you're doing. God, it's just fascinating, and I, I think too that you are. I mean, frankly, I think you're a genius. But I also thank you, Jake. <laughs> but you do things so beautifully. Like you, you can um, draw a listener in. Um, with something that they already are so familiar with, the bum, 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 bum. Mm -hmm. In Another Winter, it's it's different. And you you have connected someone to the song through a way that they didn't even really realize, probably, the blum, 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 Yep. It's, it's exquisite. I mean, it's just it, taking something that everyone is so familiar with and turning it on its head in a way that makes you feel something like, oh, my God. Well, that's the other great thing about music. You know, you can have you can have a bunch of things going on at the same time, and your ear and your brain are able to process them. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, just as you maybe wouldn't write that for a child unless it was a very precocious child, but you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're writing for an adult who has a complicated 
um, emotional life, then you can throw more stuff in there because, um, I mean, not to get too literal about it, but like we were struck by that too in Gregards that it's, it, there's a reason, there's, it's, not, it's not called gray for nothing because a lot of those characters are not black and white. Those, they're problems. It's not one thing or the other. It's right. not that, uh, it's not that Edie's mother ruined her life and that Edie was, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, they're more complicated than that. And the truth is literally kind of gray. It's kind of not one, it's not one or the other. Yes. So, so too, I think in music that, uh, there's a way to write ambivalence and bake it into the progressions and the, and the tonalities and the keys and the ranges. And so you can just in that same way, like you, like if you were baking, if you were baking like a, like a lasagna, like you wouldn't have like, you would want it to all be kind of creamy and rich and, and lush. And you'd want the many different kinds of cheeses in impacting each other. And you'd want <laughs> a lot of complimentary herbs, you know, you'd want oregano and maybe some parsley and like, you wouldn't want sesame seeds in there or something crunchy or like something or, or cinnamon or something. Sure or something sweet wouldn't be right in there. And so, but you, but you can find, um, I mean, I guess they do that in painting too. And it is, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by other fields that are nonverbal, like the visual arts and like dance, mm -hmm. uh, that in, in the way maybe some people are, don't, uh, you know, are kind of amazed by music. Uh, I too am amazed by the others. Like how, how can you distill these thoughts in a brush stroke or in a pencil line, or how can there be so much life in this, in this seemingly one dimensional or right. two dimensional thing? Um, so yeah. It's just wild. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, you... you spoke about it a little bit but um you know the sense of like you never really finish a project right. you never really finish writing um but you were nominated for a tony for great yes. for that score so did that give you any sense of um like completion or like i i did it with that um song? i mean yes i mean the real i mean it was my idea to uh, adapt the documentary into a stage musical and at that point, no one had ever uh, used the documentary as, as source material. I mean, right. usually musicals are made from films or from plays or from books or from popular events or from short stories or what have you, or, or from or from uh, original ideas. But but no one had ever done it based on a documentary film. And so um, 
kind of going from that idea and then getting the rights and then getting my collaborators on board and then writing it and then getting it to Sundance and then to Play Earth Horizons and then to Broadway. I mean, that was a huge, um, you know, there, that's why, you know, there are, there are basically really at this point, there are, there are kind of two kinds of projects out there for writers. One is the kind of old fashioned way when a producer calls you up and says, hey, kid, uh, I want you to write. I want you to write a musical of Death Becomes Her. Okay, it's a movie, and it's uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's Meryl Streep, but it's Goldie Hawn, and it's about old, it's about uh, aging and and um, plastic surgery. It, anyway, and then the other way is kind of what I did, which is more kind of an artist-driven project, where one of the creators, in, in this case the composer, has an idea of for a musical, and then it becomes a question of me pushing the rock uphill the whole way. Uh -huh. uh, without being asked to do so. And, uh, you know, I love all my children equally, but there is maybe something to be said for those projects where you have to go the extra mile and have to really convince people that your crazy idea isn't so crazy and has and, and is valid and has worth. And so um, I tell my students that too. Like, if you can find an idea that's your own and and sometimes when, you know, sometimes when I hear a project, um, other people's projects, I think like, whoa, uh, that seems crazy. I, I, I'm really curious to see how, if they can make that work. Cause like they see, they obviously see something in it that I don't. Sure. And that same way that people thought that, well, why is he making music out of great gardens? You can't do that. And, <laughs> yeah. and when I, and then when I go see these shows, I, I, you know, some of the times I'm like, oh my God, yes, I totally see what they saw in it because they were so convincing in how they did it. And other times I'm like, mm, not so much. I was actually kind of, I was, I was, I was dubious and they, and they didn't, and they didn't convince me. Right. <laughs> but, it, but yeah, it was satisfying, you know, and, and, uh, and to get that, and to get that cast and to, to be able to write for Christine is, uh, was a great, great, uh, uh thrill. You know, it's, um, I will say, I told the story before, but like when we were at Sundance, uh, with the show, we had we we had all of Act One, and we wrote a lot of Act Two during the two weeks that we were there. And uh, uh, I had written a big Act Two song for Christine called "Around the World." And yes. then and and but I the two days or maybe the day before we were supposed to do the presentation of both acts of what we had been working on, and Michael handed me the lyric to "Another Winter in a Summer Town," and uh, which happens at the very end of the show and just before the end of the show, and she's. You know, in those um, summer communities like Cape Cod and East Hampton and Jersey Shore, you know, when Labor Day comes and you feel the first autumn chill in the air and the, the summer people, as they call them, the summer renters go home and, uh, and you can really, you really feel it. Uh, there's a change in the light and there's a change in the temperature and there are fewer people and you can really kind of uh, see that there's winter ahead and, and in Edie's case you know she loved to swim in the ocean and there'd be no more of that and it means she'd be that much more isolated with a whole nother winter arguing with her mother in this house that wasn't going to be warm enough and so that sense of uh fear and foreboding and uh anyway Michael wrote this amazing lyric and he handed it to me and I just did not feel like I had it in me to write the music that quickly. I just, I like, this has to be really good. And I just feel burnt out now. And so when we did the run through of the show at Sundance, we did the whole show and then it was agreed. Michael Greif said to Christine, well, you know, when you get to that, 
11 o'clock spot in the show. Uh, why don't you read the lyric to Another Winter in a Summertown as if it were script? Just read it as if it were text. And so she did. And it was so effective, uh, partly because the lyric is so good, but also because she was so convincing doing it. The people came out to me afterwards. They were like, well, maybe you don't need any music. Maybe you could, maybe she could just at that point, even though it's a musical, maybe at that point she could just kind of recite a poem, a poem about another winter in the summertime. And I'm like, no, 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 she's not <laughs> reciting a fucking poem at 1035 in the evening. No, 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 no. You have to let me have a week. If you give me a week and a little bit of vodka, so I went back to New York and I had my week and I had my vodka and then I wrote the song and everyone was like, "Oh, you're right. Glad we didn't. Glad we didn't make it a poem." Right. <laughs> and I can truly say that that song is one of my all-time favorite songs ever to oh, sing thank to you. listen to. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's thank absolutely you. beautiful. You know, she she tried to get out of Grey Gardens. Well, I'm just, we both acts are kind of the same in a way. Like in the first act, she tries to get out of Grey Gardens and out from under the influence of her domineering mother, and she mm -hmm. succeeds. And then in the intermission of Grey Gardens, all sorts of things happen to her in New York that we don't really know exactly what. And, and the Kennedy assassination and World War II and Vietnam and... Mm -hmm. Watergate and all of that. A lot happens in intermissions. So, like, you, while you're getting your drink, while you're getting your drink, like, all sorts of shit's happening in the country. And yeah. then you come back 30 plus late years later, and uh, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, please. <laughs> it's all true. Uh, Christine. Another, oh, yeah. So, that, so, yeah. So, then in the second act, she tries to leave again. Uh, at the end, she just can't live with her mother, and she's she's almost out the door with her suitcase, and she's in her fur coat, and it's turning to autumn, and then her mother can't uh, open a can of soup, which is, you know, the way they, they had very little to eat, and so uh, she's torn, she's torn between wanting to be free, but also feeling this duty slash guilt to looking after her mother, but I was going to say... After her mother died, she did sell the house, and she did finally get out of Great Gardens, and she moved to Florida, and uh, she lived by herself. She did not have any cats in Florida, apparently, and uh, <laughs> she, uh, you know, when we first started working on it, you know, uh, Albert Maisel's the filmmaker, uh, we would have, we, we needed Edie's life rights because you could argue that she was not really a public figure. So Albert wrote her this letter saying, these guys want to turn Great Gardens into a musical and I, I'm behind it. I think it's worthwhile and I think they're worthwhile. And she wrote back that she loved the idea of Great Gardens as a musical. She goes, <laughs> goes, love, love, love. She wrote three times. Um, uh, my entire life was music and song. For all that I didn't have, my life was still joyous. Oh, my uh, God. Which was kind of heartbreaking. And then she died. And yeah. then, and then, you know, in a completely cold and mercenary way, life privacy rights end in death in the state of Florida where she died. And so I no longer needed those rights, which I was happy to try to get. And I think I would have gotten them. 
Yeah. But the, the other thing that I, you know, apparently when the documentary was first shown to the women, they screened it for them. And little Edie said, well, I think it's good, but I really wish there was more singing and dancing. <laughs> and so I like to think that we gave her posthumously uh, the more singing and dancing that she said she wanted. Wow. I love that. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, you have obviously mentioned both Christine and Patty, but in talking about war paint, which I would love to ask about, sure. I feel like there kind of isn't a conversation about it without those two because it was... And in, in, in this could be, I could be totally wrong, but my impression is that this was written for these two women to sing these roles. It was and it was that we actually started developmentally with uh, Patty and Donna Murphy. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, and uh, after several readings, then Donna's husband sadly got quite ill mm. and died. And she withdrew uh and uh and then christine entered the picture and so uh but a lot of the show was rewritten for christine there was a song called pink that donna sang it was almost entirely different song because those christine and donna are both wonderful but so different different looks and different voices and different sweet spots and i played the donna version for christine and she looked at me looks like oh it's pretty good she goes, well, what about, what if we did, what about here if we did, or maybe we could look at this part. And so then I rewrote part of it and she goes, oh yeah. And then I was like, okay, so you really, what you really want me to do is rewrite the whole thing. Right. You're not really, you're just not, you're just not saying so. But I'm like, okay, I can, I can do that. And as she was right, and it was much better for her, but we ended up, yes, writing a lot of new stuff for Christine. And truthfully, um, you know, in some ways, Christine and Patty are much more opposites than Donna and Patty. Yeah. I mean, obviously there would have been wigging, but like Christine is uh, very tall and Patty is very short and Christine is very blonde and Patty is very dark. And Christine is, uh, you know, very soprano-y and Patty, although she has those notes is really, we know her mostly as a, we know her more as a belter. And so there were so many, so if you're doing a, 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 a show about two women who are who are enemies and also uh, foils that had different, you know, uh, you would say that Elizabeth Arden was, uh, she had kind of a preppy aesthetic, a kind of Ralph Lauren, you would say, and, and, and Helena Rubinstein was 
her clientele, her, her products were for the exotic woman, which really was kind of code for Jewish and ethnic. Yes. Uh, and so um, it, I think it ended up the way it was supposed to. And, uh, and uh, you know, Patty and Christine knew each other for so long. I found this amazing picture of them from the late 70s or maybe around 1980 uh, with the two of them and Christine Andreas, and they were all on Broadway. And it, I think it was, I think it was Evita, Oklahoma, and 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 something else. And uh, wow! So they had a lot of history, but they had never worked together. So that was really interesting too. And and in a show where where uh, you know, even though they had salons and businesses around the corner from each other their whole lives, uh, the urban legend was that uh, Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden never met face to face. And so. Uh, we kind of played with that in the show and, and uh, they don't meet, but they kind of imagine what life would be like if they could talk to each other. And then they sing similar thoughts in different locations. And then finally at the end of the show, we uh, Doug kind of brilliantly imagines a scene where they finally uh, get to get to be in the same room with each other. Totally. And I bet too, that just like that, that level of, you know, going against each other or whatever, mm-hmm. or vying for that, um, power and everything was was a fun dynamic to explore in the rehearsal room because patty and christine are both so open and from what i've gathered just like the loveliest warmest artists yeah and you know i have to say that that so we're we're three gay men writing this show about two women and uh we were very very encouraging to both women that we desperately wanted their input and they really pushed us they said you know it would be the easiest thing to do to write like the whole thing was like a cat fight uh and and they said you know that's just too easy and too fast and you really should go deeper than that and so then we started um at their behest looking at things like well you know what are the plus sides to like does your fiercest competitor actually make you innovate more? Does it actually make you work harder? Do they make you uh, be better at what you do? And also, like particularly in the case of these two women who had companies that had their own names on them, I mean, they were like Henry Ford. I mean, they were they were rich and powerful and at a time when women uh, were not uh, uh, business titans like that. And so... You know, they were, we started to think like, you know, you may say you hate this other person, but like, in a way, isn't that other person the only other person who knows what it's like to be on the top of the mountain like right. that and to be breathing that rarefied air? Like, what are the things that, you know, you wish you could talk to someone because no one else would really understand what it's like to have all that on your shoulders or to have, you know, younger competitors nipping at your heels or to have to constantly be told no by men or to constantly uh, have your personal life upended uh, by uh, the demands of your business. So uh, they were really helpful to us in, in getting us to make it deeper and more multidimensional than just like a, a, a bitchy cat fight between the two sure, ladies. Totally. So then in writing for both for Patty Lapone and then for Christine Eversold, um, do you just sort of grow familiar and comfortable with their voices and their 
you know, like the tessitura or whatever you want to call it, the range and the, the where things sit comfortably. And, and you just have that vocabulary with them. So you just know how to write that. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, obviously with Christine, uh, I had her voice so much in my ear. Or I should say voices. I mean, she has so many, you know, she could be a kind of coloratura, operetta style soprano. She can, she can belt. Uh, she has, she's not afraid to have her voice sound ugly as she does in, in, uh, in Grey Gardens sometimes and also very beautiful and she can be funny. And, you know, Patty, when I was, uh, Oh God, I sh- I'll tell it. When I was 16 years old, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I, was, I told my parents that I was coming to New York to see Patty in Evita, and there was nothing they could do to stop me. <laughs> and yet they were surprised when I, when I came out to them. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so they said, they're like, yeah, okay. So I got on the plane by myself, and I came to New York, and I got a ticket at the Broadway Theater in 1979. And so I've had Patty's, as she just, that performance live was just beyond the beyond. And so I've had her voice, I guess I could say voices as well, because Patty, uh, although known for that, you know, uh, once in a lifetime belt, I mean, Patty will say herself that in those years, she felt she was really singing incorrectly and didn't have a lot of technique. But as she's gotten older and worked with Joan later, I mean, Patty now has incredible upper register and, and many more voices in there and has so much more, uh, ability to spin different colors and different ranges in her voices. So, so she's in, in singing more correctly. Uh, she's also really expanded the width and breadth and depth of her instrument. And so uh, that was really thrilling too. So most of the show, when they sing together, Christine is on the higher part, uh-huh. but there are sometimes when Patty is. Uh, and so I thought that was interesting too. And that was, that was, a requ- that was a request and also kind of worked for the character moment. So I've, I've had, and then of course, so that, so I've known both of their instruments. And so since Evita, of course, I've seen everything that Patty's ever done. And, you know, she, I've seen her a lot in cabaret and she's fantastic with Kurt Vile songs. She sings Surabaya, Johnny magnificently. And she did an incredible um, Mahagoni with Audra in LA and she did a Seven Deadly Sins at Lincoln Center. And so uh, for her 11 o'clock number, which is called Forever Beautiful, where uh, she has, Rubenstein had all these great artists, Picasso and Dufy and Lempica and Giacometti, all did uh, renderings of her, paintings of her. And she, in a way, she was, I mean, because she was a great art collector, but she was also, I think, trying to stop time. And with a painting, you don't get older, you're frozen and whenever that period that the artist captured her. So when I was writing that 11 o'clock number for her, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to give her a kind of something that evokes a little bit of a Kurt Vile kind of angular, slightly uh, German sounding uh, mm-hmm. song. Uh, Cause I know she's going to knock it out of the park and, and she did. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I will say like, so I had worked with Christine. I knew Patty for 30 years, but I'd never worked with her. And the very first time I did material for her, like, you know, so when I'm at my piano, I'm singing it myself as I'm writing and I'm trying to channel Patty. <laughs> but when I actually get in the room with Patty to play her the material, it's like, 
I don't want to like do Patty to Patty because like that <laughs> that that kind of that kind of dances right up into the edge of like like kind of impersonation, right? And there are right. great Patty impersonators out there, and she. Do you know that you know that guy? Uh, what's his uh, Jonathan Hoover? He, he he has a he has a Instagram handle called Inappropriate, Inappropriate. Patty. <laughs> he does unbelievable Patty impersonation, and then yes. and then he was on American Horror Story with her doing exactly. Patty to Patty. Very meta. And then wow. another meta moment was he did he did a few years ago he did Patty doing Christine doing Edie doing. Um, a revolutionary costume. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is just blowing my mind. Just way too specific. But anyway, but I'm so I'm there and I'm trying because I want so I want to give Patty a flavor. Patty got one. I don't want her to sound like me, but right. like I also don't want her to be like, okay, then I'm gonna do you know, I'm do you're gonna you're gonna sing it just like this, Patty. Cause also like I want her to have I want her to feel like I want her to interpret it, I don't want her to mimic me doing it, so right. I don't think that I should mimic her doing it before she had a chance <laughs> to think about how she wants to do it herself. Wow, that is wild. But the very first, you know, so both women were, you know, well into their 60s when when we did that show, and, you know, Patty's gone on record, and I think rightly so. She's called Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, her word is woman-hating for <laughs> making Evita sit so high all the time. And, and... And I love singing high, and she likes singing high, but it has. To, but there's no reason for it to be high when you right. don't need it to be high. There's got to be a and, why. And she and she thinks that I understand her point that a lot of it sits un, needlessly, unnecessarily high. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost like you want it to be like you want the high stuff to be like accent moments that really pop. But like if you're doing red, 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 red all the time, it starts to lose <laughs> some of its impact, and then and then. It, Anyway, also, so, so when I was writing it, I was like, you know, I want these women who both have great instruments that they have a lot of technique now, and uh, I want them to be able to do eight shows a week for a good long time. And so I think maybe I erred a little too uh, on, the other, on the other side of it, because the, the first notes I got back from the producer, they, they weren't as blunt as this, but, but essentially it was, Patty wants to sing higher, longer, and more often. <laughs> And I was thinking like, well, Jesus Christ, I want that too. I was trying to be polite and respectful. I was trying to not be woman-hating. But of course, of course we can sing higher, longer, more often. Everybody wants that. (laughs) Who doesn't want that? And we got it. (laughs) And we got it. Well, Scott, before I let you go, I have a series of musical theater rapid-fire questions that I ask every guest. Are you ready? Seven and a half inches cut. I'm oh, sorry, not sorry. I'm oh, sorry, not those. Oh, different question. Sorry, Jake. I'm sorry. It wasn't the grind. It wasn't the grinder round. Okay. No, 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 no. This is. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite musical? Gypsy and Sweeney. Ah, oh, love. Do you have a least favorite musical? I saw something called Into the Light. It was a musical about the Shroud of Turin. And, okay. and there was, and one of the characters was a mime. There was a mime who who appeared seemingly without reason in many scenes. <laughs> and that was it. Was really bad. Your least favorite musical. <laughs> um, are you a Shroud of Turin and a mime? Go. 
It'll be brilliant. What could go wrong? Oh my God. We have, we have a hit. <laughs> um, are you a morning person or a night owl? 1,000 billion percent night owl. <laughs> uh, what is the craziest thing that a director has asked of you? I'm going to pivot and say, this, I, I swear this kind of answers your question. When I was musical directing falsettos on Broadway in 1992, Barry and Fran Weisler, the producers, uh, so, so basically the, the first act was March of the Falsettos and the second act was Falsetto Land. Mm-hmm. And they put them together and they, and Barry and Fran, I was the music director and Barry and Fran took me out for dinner and, and we were in previews and they, and they said to me, you've got to get James Lapine to cut act one. And I'm like, well, which part of Act One? They're like, the whole thing. And I'm thinking, like, you want me, the music director, to ask James James Sunday in the Park with George into the woods, James, <laughs> to cut the entire first act. I was like, good luck with that. What? Like, it's hard? Just Yeah, good luck. Yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. I'm yeah. sure he'll be thrilled. I'm sure he'll be thrilled, and he'll do it immediately. <laughs> Barry and Fred. Right. Oh, my God. Um, do you have a favorite score that you have ever written? You said you love all your children equally, but there's got to be a favorite. I mean, I suppose Great Gardens, but I would also say uh, before we were all fired by Harvey Weinstein, Michael and I and uh, Alan Nee and Rob Astor did a musical version of Finding Neverland in England. And that's uh-huh. some of my very, 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 very best and most favorite work. Oh, my God. And then he decided what it really needed after our out-of-time triad in England was a pop score and an entirely new uh, composer, lyricist, uh, book writer, director, choreographer, and cast. Insane. Insane. But there's some beautiful work in that. I, I, I mean, on the plus side, he's in jail. So, <laughs> you know, there is some artistic uh, satisfaction I get in that. But I, Karmically and, and speaking. The, and I own the score. Michael and I own the score entirely. One day I would love to do a concert version of that for people to hear. It's some of oh my, my very most beautiful work. Wow. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Um, are you a coffee or tea person? thousand percent coffee. <laughs> um, are you a cocaine person or, <laughs> or, or a, or a uh, Oxycontin person? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not answering that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but if you but if you but if you have the night owl and the coffee, I suppose there are clues in there. Yes, indeed. Who is the silliest person that you have ever collaborated with? That's a great question, Doug Wright. <laughs> Amazing. You know, Oscar Levan, Oscar Levan, I am my own Oscar- wife. <laughs> wife, Doug Wright. We. <laughs> I don't tell the story very often, but he, I went to college with Doug and somehow right at graduation, I had this idea that we needed to turn Gilligan's Island into a musical <laughs> and that Doug, I'm going to win a Pulitzer Prize and Tony later in my life, right, was the perfect person to do it. Of course. And so I contacted Sherwood Schwartz, who invented Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. And he said, well, why don't you write three songs on spec and, and send them to us? So Doug and I and a lyricist, David Sean Klein, wrote these three songs and a treatment. And we got on the plane and we went to California and we went to meet Sherwood Schwartz at his house where he 
uh, ate on Brady Bunch plates and slept on Gilligan's Island sheets. And we, <laughs> uh, and Doug, we had, Doug had written, we, we were laughing and written, written silly, funny, goofy stuff. You know, kind of, we wanted it to be kind of like little shop of horrors. Goofy, sure. fun. And we wrote these, we played these three songs and he goes, you guys, you kids, you're very talented, but listen, that's not at all what I have in mind. What I have in mind is this. Okay, you ready? The castaways are the very last people left on Earth as the result of a nuclear winter. And so they are forced to continue the survival of the human species. <laughs> and we were like, we thought like maybe like Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> we're thinking something like a little more fun, you know? <laughs> Anyway, but Doug and I, we, he, he's, very, he's very silly to this day. Brilliant and, and silly. Love that. Well, my final question for you is, what is one thing that you would tell young baby Scott? Don't worry so much about pleasing other people or what other people think. Period. Try to rely, try to have more confidence in what you think and what you want. Love that. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so, so much for being on the pod. You are such a dream. I, I've looked up. Oh, my pod, you guys. Oh, my pod. We did it. It was my, it was my pleasure. Thank you for being so unbelievably well-prepared and thank you for being a fan and thank you for asking such good questions, Jake. Oh my gosh. I try. And now, and oh, I should ask you something. And who, when, when there's the, when who are you going? Who do you want to play opposite in the in the in the two starring role musical musical that you're going to do with your competitor slash enemy? Oh my god, this is such a good question. Ooh, who I want to play opposite? Yeah, someone who you're competitive with, but also admire, but also kind of. A little bit jealous of, but also really support. Oh my god, this is going to go on forever. I have too many options. They're all rattling through my brain. Oh, you know who it is? Who? Kelly O'Hara. Interesting. What about Kelly O'Hara and Sutton in a War Paint revival? Oh my god! <laughs> Twenty years from now. Period. I would see it. I'll only. I'll be a very Botoxed eighty, <laughs> uh, but still, you know, looking. Still appreciating the young male form. Uh, but yes, Kelly and maybe Kelly and Sutton. Kelly and Sutton, come on. And then you and you. And then you could, we could we could write you in. You could come in. You could be you could be uh, uh, you could be Estee Lauder. We could write you in and you could come in like, <laughs> fuck you, bitches. My cosmetics are the best. Fuck you. <laughs> maybe it's Maybelline. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Scott, you are such a treat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. And thank you very kindly for scheduling this at noon and not at nine in the morning when I would have had to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't do that. <laughs> Unavailable. <laughs> you guys, that's it for episode number 50 of Oh My Pod, you guys. Thank you so, so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram at oh my pod you guys and please please rate review and subscribe anywhere you listen to the pod love you guys talk soon bye 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.